everyone, I'm Dr. Susie Green, the founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, and welcome to my new podcast, Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. I'll be chatting to both academics and practitioners who are working in the evolving field of positive psychology coaching. We'll be looking at the interplay between the complementary fields of positive psychology and coaching psychology within an evidence-based coaching context. I'm hoping to equip practitioners with both knowledge and skills, and most importantly, have a positive impact on their way of being as positive psychology coaches. Today, we welcome Professor Michael Kavanagh. Michael is an internationally recognized academic, practitioner, and consultant in the fields of leadership and coaching psychology. Michael's work focuses on preparing leaders, teams, and coaches to work in complex settings. As an academic, he is the Deputy Director of the Coaching Psychology Unit at the University of Sydney, where he and Tony Grant established the world's first master's degree in coaching psychology. He's also a visiting professor at Middlesex University in the UK. He has coached leaders and managers at all levels from a diverse range of industries. Along with numerous publications in the peer-reviewed press, Michael is the principal author of the Standards Australia Handbook of Organisational Coaching. He's also the Australian editor of the International Coaching Psychology Review. Michael's passion is assisting leaders, organisations and individuals to understand and address complex challenges in ways that increase the sustainability of the organisation, its people and the planet. Well, welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining me on Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. Lovely to see you. And of course, we've known each other quite a long time. So. Close to 20 years now, wouldn't it? Uh, Longer, I think. I started in 2001, my doctorate, and it was sort of mid towards end of that year that I had, you know, formalised, I I guess, Tony Mm -hmm. Grant as having been my secondary supervisor at the time. I was aware of the coaching psych unit but didn't really think in a clinical doctorate that I'd be doing a study on life coaching, which was a bit unheard of. And I know that you also come from a clinical background too, Michael, so I'd love for people to hear a little bit about your journey. And, of course, you are one of the leading lights and pioneers in this field, so it is such an honour to have you here on the first series of this podcast. Right. Okay. So a little bit about my journey. Um, so Tony and I met on the first day of undergraduate uh, in a class called uh, General Statistical Methods. <laughs> and we were both mature age students and um, and somewhat nervous about the whole university thing, but we formed a friendship. And having gone through undergraduate and honours, we ended up finishing first and second. In honours, and then moved on to Macquarie University. So that was Sydney University, and then moved on to Macquarie because the clinical program at Sydney at that time was in a bit of disarray due to a number of issues. And so we both picked up clinical psychology at uh, Macquarie University. Right. Is that with John Franklin? Was Professor John Franklin there? Yeah, John Franklin was our supervisors for our because we did the combined masters in clinical. Well, I did the masters in clinical and PhD. Tony dropped out of the uh, the clinical and just took out a masters of science. I think. Might have, 
behavioural science, something like that. So it had always been my intention to be a clinical psychologist. That's why I started university in the first place. But as we went through, we discovered more and more about coaching and Tony approached Sydney University to start up the coaching unit and asked me to be a part of that. And so we we started a, that unit together and wrote the course. And uh, when we wrote it, we said quite explicitly to each other that we would like to create a course that we would have liked to have taken. Love that. And so that's what we did, and it's been very successful. Um, It's got a good international reputation, yeah. The world's first coaching psychology unit, and of course it then spread globally through initially I think the UK, but then Europe, South Africa, South America. I think the US is perhaps the last domain, would you say? And Asia, is is there much happening in uh, America or Asia at the moment? There's lots of coaching degrees in the US. Yes. But not coaching psychology as far as I understand it. Yes. I think I have heard of Life University and I can't recall exactly where they are. I think it's called Life University. And there are a couple of pretty rigorous academics I've I reached out to because uh, I, I heard that they might be doing some and they they said they absolutely adore the work that's been done at Sydney Uni and uh they're certainly you know recognizing that in their teachings as well. But you're right, I haven't seen much in the US at all. Yeah. So most most of the coaching degrees that are in existence around the world are through business schools. Yeah. And not specifically coaching psychology degrees. The UK's got some and there are some in some other places, but I'm not aware of any coaching psychology in Asia, other than Australia, of course, or in uh, in the US. And what about the clinical? Because I know myself, I've shared with you, I'm really grateful that I had that clinical training and I think even more so through COVID and the emergence, I guess, of you know well-being, proactive well-being, uh, particularly in the corporate sector where there's lots of wellness, well-being consultants out there. Yep. And so I'm really grateful that I had that training because I think it, I feel confident in, in, in that space because I have had that background and very rigorous training, I would say, as well. Yeah. So, I, look, I would agree. I found the transition from clinical to coaching psychology not particularly easy. It's very easy from a clinical perspective to see things in terms of pathology. So true. And that's where I guess positive psychology comes in, but it's also it's a way of thinking that needs to shift. And um, I know in the first couple of years, in terms of my coaching practice, that took a bit of effort and it was uh, needed to be quite deliberate. But like yourself, I'm very pleased that I have that background because it is a rigorous background and it also helps you to understand that they're now talking about third wave or second, a little while ago they are talking about second wave positive psychology, which is embracing the dark side. I wrote a paper uh, for positive psychology probably at least 10 years ago talking about positive psychology needing to move beyond its adolescence and to mature and to embrace the dark side, if you like, or I didn't use those terms, but to embrace the problematic sides of psychology. And so I'm, I'm really glad to see that that has 
that's sort of been picked up. And now the the other area that I work in is complexity theory, and now yeah. they're talking about third wave psychology embracing complexity. So I'm very pleased that those movements in positive psychology are taking place because I think we can't really understand the world unless we take into account those things. Absolutely. And I think coming from a clinical background, for me, it was never about being happy all the time. And and I, mm. I still say they will lock you up <laughs> if you're too happy. You walk around with that big yellow smiley happy face. But so yeah. I, I really struggled with that because that wasn't, I think, for my clinical training, I always realized that the full range of human emotions were, were important. But we did see, you know, that positive psychology make the front cover of Time magazine with that big yellow happy smiling face. And uh, so I think it, it, it really did need that that pendulum to swing back and that more of that second wave positive psychology to emerge. Yeah. yeah. So in many ways, I, I find that there are aspects of coaching psychology that I've learned about that are only just starting to be discussed, such as complexity and systems-based approaches. You've been in that space. And in fact, that's been one of your key areas, Michael, within coaching psychology as well, hasn't it? Yes. And yeah. um how would you talk about, I guess, the integration of positive psych and coaching psych from, uh, I guess, a complexity perspective? Is there any? I think that, and this is true of psychology generally, not just positive psychology, that um, psychology generally is really seriously lacking in its understanding of systems and the impact of systems on the human person. So one of the things that is a, a a principle, if you like, in systems is that all systems are nested. Right. So that, you know, you can go down from atoms to molecules to tissue types and so on. All of these are different levels of system and they're all nested in one another. And that goes right through to, you know, human systems and the environment, the world, the universe. So every system exists within another system. And if we ignore the interactions between systems, we ignore a huge part of life. One of the ways that shows up, for instance, in positive psychology is in the area of resilience. Yes. Where our resilience is often seen as a personal characteristic. It's something that the individual has. You know, and it's bestowed upon the individual in terms of their capacity to think in positive ways and uh, optimism and uh, persistence and so on, and that these things make the person resilient. And I really strongly disagree with that. My view of resilience is much more a systems view. And so it involves some of those capacities. But it also involves the interactions and permeability, if you like, of the individual system with the systems in which that person is living. So my definition of resilience is a sort of a strange one. It's effective access to redundant resources. What do you mean by redundant resources, Michael? So redundant resources are resources that we're not using. Right. To do the tasks of daily living and survival and so on. An example would be 
if you face so the normal definition of resilience is the capacity to bounce back following some sort of adversity. Yes. And I think in positive psychology and psychology generally, people see that ability to bounce back as being a function of the way people think, their cognitive and emotional strengths. However, when I really think about it, and the research that we've done tends to validate this, the thing that actually helps us bounce back is having access to resources. So, for instance, we did some research with uh, Katie Folks did this research with uh, Olympic athletes and tracked what happened to them when they left elite sports. And you'd think that these Olympic athletes be highly resilient people, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd think so. Yeah, you know, lots of grit, persistence, determination, optimism and so on. And they would call themselves very resilient. But often what happened is when they left elite sports, there was a bit of a collapse. And that collapse, you have to sort of think bigger than the individual to understand that. So when they're Olympic athletes and Australian Institute of Sport or whatever their sporting body is, they're surrounded by all sorts of resources. Sportive structure and, yeah, resources. Yeah, structures. They've got trainers, educators, nutritionists, et cetera, et cetera. And they're really supported strongly throughout that process. And then when they leave, all of that just stops. And what we found is that the ones who had spent time while in elite sports building up resources for their departure from elite sports. In advance, thinking in ahead. Yes. They're the ones that survived best. But the ones that didn't ended up finding themselves in a, in a relatively resource-free environment. And then when they had challenges, they struggled. Yeah, this sounds so similar to high school, senior high school students, particularly in some of those independent schools that have so much support and then they go to uni and there's this expectation of you've got to do it yourself, you know, and they can fall to pieces in that sense. And also people going into retirement. It's a similar thing, isn't it? Yeah. So where do you get redundant resources? And redundant resources are things that either you have access to and are not currently using or resources that you can redeploy from one area to another. So these are both internal and external resources. Yes. So the internal resources, as I see it, are only really, they're things like, you know, optimism, persistence, and so on, the things that we normally think of as being resilience. I think they're only really useful in that they help us gain access to the external resources we need Mm -hmm. to meet the challenges. That's an interesting way to think about it, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, the the sort of simplistic example I use is if you're driving in the desert and your car breaks down and you have no water, it doesn't matter how optimistic you are or how (laughs) persistent you are, if you don't get water and you're there long enough, you will die. And so your resilience is utterly dependent on that external resource of water. Absolutely. So many things going through my mind. I've just had a conversation with someone attempting to make systemic change in the healthcare sector, as we know. Yes. 
very complex systems. And she said to me this morning, her head hurts trying to think about how this is going to happen. I mean, complexity is complex. Like, So I've got two, uh, I guess, questions. One is for a practitioner, perhaps that are working as consultants in two organizations. Some are more complex than others. And I, I do share the same concerns. And I know we've had a few little conversations around this. And I do quote your, I, I remember on a panel and you tell me if I'm wrong, but the definition that I've kept in my head is that resilience is an emergent property of the system. Is that yes. is that correct? And I, yeah. I, lo- I love that. So I've, I've been using that and, and referencing mm. you appropriately. Mm-hmm. And it makes so much more sense to me. And I think Again, coming from that clinical training, we were so individually focused. We didn't have, and I talked to a colleague of ours, Jill McNaught, who worked at Relationships Australia and said she was trained in systems thinking for family systems. No, it wasn't what I was trained in. And I've had to learn through working with organisational psychologists and OD professionals, and that's stretched me. You know, so whilst I still believe that we can you know, help people, uh, equip them with psychological capabilities. I am more than ever cognizant of these, you know, the system and the environment and the context now. Um, mm. But it can be, you see a lot of practitioners coming out, even with masters in positive psych, still very focused on the individual self-care yeah. strategies. So I've got it. I've raised a few points there. It'd be great to hear your thoughts. So, so a couple of thoughts that pop out. Um, I think resilience, for instance, is a property, an emergent property of the system. But the way that we in psychology tend to define it is as a characteristic of the individual, a property of the individual. Which is a worry now, really, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, because what it does is it, it makes resilience a feature of the individual, whereas I think that, to use a philosophical term, that's an error of category. Right. So the area of category is that rather than a property of the individual, it's a relation between the individual and the system in which they are existing. So you can think of a relation as, you know, the cup is on the table. Yes. The relation is onness. And does onness exist in the cup or in the table? Well, it doesn't exist in either. Yes. It's between them. And I think resilience is one of these between things. Yes. It's a relation between the individual and the system that they're in. Yes. Uh And with this new psych health and safety legislation that's emerging that clearly recognises the role of psychosocial hazards and, you know, there's now requirements here in New South Wales to be assessing for those and then reducing them as much as is practicable. But in my experience so far, and I know it's early days, particularly I've just mentioned the healthcare sector, people I've been working with have been asking, what have you been doing from a wellbeing and resilience perspective? And it's all been self-care strategies. Yes. You no, know, and it's as if the people working in these systems don't even realize that there is a, a legal responsibility by the organization, but they, they don't even know what those hazards or those factors or those structures are. So it, do you think we're still learning about I, like, I think we are, and I think we're a bit like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill and seeing it roll back down again. Because one of the things and I think positive psychology has been a part of this, as has psychology generally, with this focus on the individual. Now, you're going to get me started here because this (laughs) is a big social thing. So 
One of the questions that I ask is, qui bono, who benefits? Yes. And I think oftentimes we've grown up in a world that is very much shaped by an American view of the world and the individual. And psychology has picked that up. Yes. That everything is about the individual. So, for instance, you know, there's lots of resilience programs being run in organizations. And they're all about that individual self-care type stuff. And there's a, a philosopher by the name of Bong Chul Han, who's, uh, I think he works out of Germany. And he talks about auto-exploitation. That what's happened is that we have bought this notion that everything is about us as individuals. And therefore, we look to ourselves. And if we're not coping, if we're not doing well, then what we do is we beat ourselves up and we say, I'm just not resilient enough. I'm just not strong enough. I'm just not this. And so no one has to do it to us. We're doing it to ourselves. So true, isn't it? It is. And so who benefits from that? Well, it's great for organizations to say, we need more resilient people and you just need to be more resilient. That puts no requirement on them to ensure resilience. And if resilience is access to redundant resources, then there is an organizational requirement to make sure that those resources are there. And there's lots of different types of resources. There's things like time. Yes. There's things like social resources, social networks. There's resources around recuperation. There's material resources that are really important. And I think we're coming into a time now with you know all of the, the the strictures and inflation and rising costs and so on, where we're going to start to really notice more and more and more how our resilience is dependent on access to resources. We we see this even with you know gas and energy that Russia closes the tap and all of a sudden we're struggling. So we're really seeing it very clearly yeah. at, at a global scale, but perhaps that's going to heighten our awareness to be more aware of our at, in our own smaller systems. Of- at an individual scale, that's right. You know, yes. and, and you hear this all the time in coaching where people think, if I can just do more and more and more and more, yes, then it'll be okay. And I've often had people come to me and say, I, I want to go to the gym, I need to get fit. And you ask them why, and they say, well, I've just got so much on my plate, I'm exhausted all the time, and if I can just get fitter, I'll have more energy and be able to do it. And so the response is, so if you can go to the gym three times a week, if you can add three more things into your week, everything's going to get better. Yes. So, you know, there's that element. But we see this, you know, with particularly women who have a belief that they have to be able to do everything and be everything. And I think we've picked that up as a society generally. And that's why depression and anxiety and so on are going up because we're failing according to the standards that we hold for ourselves. Yes. But those standards aren't necessarily very human. No, they're not, are they? And some of these large corporates I mean, I, you know me, I'm a high hoper and optimist, but I r- really can't see how some of these structures and the competitive nature that they set up and the, you know, the focus on profit, how are they ever going to change, Michael? And there are people that are burning out and 
suffering. Like. Well, I think we're seeing the first starts of change here. You know, you've got things like quiet quitting. Yep. You know, and people, I think in some senses, the the COVID crisis and the movement away from the workplace and into the home and so I mean, I'm coming to you from my home now. I think the movement away from those things has helped people to start to reassess because they've seen a different, I've had a different experience. Now, whether or not that continues, I don't know. But you, you've seen people starting to refuse to do some of this stuff. And I think that, you know, corporates, all of our human systems are things that we create. Yes. So we can do them differently. We can choose to do them differently. And what do you think the role of coaching or positive psychology coaching might be in creating some of this? One of the major roles, I think, is to for coaches to start to think beyond the individual and into what are the worlds that those individuals inhabit, what are the social systems that they inhabit, and try and understand what's the relationship between the individual and the social systems. Because I think in many ways, we as individuals are emergent properties. Yeah, I love that. Of the social system. That I don't know about you, but whether I'm happy or sad will often depend a lot on what's going on in the world around me. If I wake up in the morning and my wife and I have a fight, then my day goes differently to if we wake up and we're getting on brilliantly, you know. Even the weather has impacts on these. Oh, yeah, research on that too, isn't there? Yeah, so access to environments, to natural environments and so on. So as coaches, we have to start to think beyond the individual, and that's hard because it now brings us into that space of the person from health that you're talking about whose head was hurting. Yes. Because systems are complex. Yeah. So as coaches, we need to start to engage with that complexity. And do you think, I mean, from my perspective, I have regular supervision, which helps me think bigger beyond that, you know, and I'm mindful of my background of being very individually focused, but my supervisor really helps me to think about, and plus she has training in systems. Yes. Theories. Do you think supervision is definitely a must-have? I think so, but it's a bit like coaching. You know, if you're coaching someone and you both see the world in the same way, it's going to be hard to challenge them out of that worldview. If you both do, yes. If you both see the world as being a function of me as an individual, then it's going to be hard to push beyond that. Same with the supervisor. If your supervisor sees the world, if you have, for instance, a a clinical supervisor who sees the world through that clinical view, then you're just going to reinforce each other. It's interesting consideration, isn't it? And this probably, and I know we're, we're quickly running out of time, but this to me sounding like the realm of adult development theory as well. It is. Which is is your area. Yeah. So really what adult development theory is, lots of different theories, but at the heart of most of them is what's known as the subject-object shift. So things that we were subject to when we developed were able to make object. And what that means is 
we can do stuff with it. We can see it. We can step back from it and look at it. And I think supervision is really about making object things that we were subject to. And being subject to something is like it has you. It's a bit like if you've ever had an emotion, that's being object to it. But have you been had by your emotions? Yes. And that's where you're stuck inside it. And so I think part of what supervision is about is that developmental shift of being able to make object the things that we were subject to. Are there any specific or perhaps more recent publications that we could direct people to or share? Any of your favourite ones at the moment that we could could share? So I like uh, Byung Chul Han. He's done a bunch of stuff in that space. There's a really good book on complexity by Bolton, B-O-U-L-T-O-N. Right. Bolton and a number of other authors. I can't think of who they are. And so there's a, a good book on embracing complexity, I think it's called. I've got a few papers coming out at the moment, one on ethics and complexity, and there's one on supervision that I did with David Lane that came out in 2021, and then others on on life coaching and solution-focused approaches to coaching and so on. So there's a range of, of those papers that are coming out, but I, I've really been taken by the Embracing Complexity book. And I'll just reach over and grab this one. Oh, there it is. Here's another one that's really good. Rebel Ideas by Matthew Syed. Oh, was that on The Practice Effect? Was that Matthew Syed or not? No, he... Um, this is really on the power of diverse thinking okay. and what happens when you don't have diversity. And so it's very systemically sensitive. Yep, fabulous. If you like. So that's a, a, that's a good book, yeah. Fantastic. So, Michael, I'm sure there's lots of people on here today, both positive psych practitioners, coaches, that are curious to learn more about coaching psychology. Now, of course, there's the wonderful Masters at Sydney Uni, which you continue to teach on. But you also have, because sometimes people aren't quite up to doing another master's, particularly if they've done a master's in PosSite, you still run, and I believe with our colleague, Dr. Travis Kemp, it's a four-day professional certificate. Is that correct? Yes, in coaching psychology, yeah, that's right. Well, it's professional certificate, yeah. I mean, certification of these things around the world is a somewhat meaningless term. So. Yeah, you end up with a a certificate of completion around that, yeah. Yeah, and I can highly recommend that. I think, I mean, I'm sure it's evolved over time, but I did that course twice with you and Tony when I was doing my doctorate. Did you? uh, That that was my, I guess, initial education in the field, and I've since recommended it many, many times, and I've had wonderful feedback both with Mm -hmm. yourself and Tony. And now with Travis, I've just more recently have had some wonderful feedback from someone that I referred in. Oh, fantastic. uh, I can highly recommend that course. Two incredible minds in the field of coaching psychology and positive psychology. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Michael. Any final thoughts that we didn't get to that you wanted to share? No, not, not really. I think the main thing is that the focus on psychopathology as a standalone thing, is problematic. Similarly, the focus on the positive emotions yes. as a standalone thing is problematic. And I think that 
what we need is something that explores both the, the problematic emotions, the positive emotions, and the relationship with the system. So I'm all in favour of the third wave positive psychology. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I'm most excited about because the, particularly the field of positive psych coaching, I've been having some interesting conversations with people like Robert Biswas-Diener and Christian Van Neuerberg and Jonathan, and the field's evolving. I don't feel attached to anything I've published previously or anything I've said previously. I'm just mm-hmm. excited to see both the fields and the combined field evolving over time. Yeah. I think the whole positive psychology movement when it started was really a, an attempt to redress an imbalance, and now we're seeing the pendulum swing back the other way. That's it. Absolutely. Well, exciting times. I just want to thank you for your incredible contribution, Michael, to the field. and thank you. Um, And my own personal thank you for your support through my career. And um, we look forward to hearing more. I will share your research if, if they're open access and we can. I'll certainly share links to those to the audience. Okay. Thanks, Susie. And thanks for your kind comments. Thank you so much for listening to Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. If you're new to the field, check out my two co-edited texts, Positive Psychology Coaching in Practice with Professor Stephen Palmer and Positive Psychology Coaching in the Workplace with Wendy Smith and Professor Alona Bonniewell. You might also like to check out our new Academy Plus and use the tab on our website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au, where you can learn more about positive psychology coaching with me. Don't forget to sign up for our free e-news when you're there, where you'll be kept in the loop for all things positive. Bye for now.